Good morning. It is an honor to be here. Thank you, Dr. Hagan, for the invitation. Uh, I have had the privilege of getting to know you just a little bit. I met you at the General Council and sat in a room, and you asked me if I'd help you raise $50 million, and I said yes. And, uh, you know, I needed something to do with my spare time. And, uh, but we're going to get that done. The group of people we just met with are also going to do that. I mean, you, you are a leader of leaders, and people are compelled to help you achieve that vision. I believe that, that God has called you and is bringing the right people around you. And so getting to spend time in Miami and, and do that was a lot of fun. Uh, watching Jeff and Martha Dio from young people that started out in contemporary or progressive, whatever the genre was called back then, uh, Christian music. Jeff really uh, was a pioneer in a lot of stuff. Had Sonic Flood and a lot of those things like that. He worked with the craziest manager you've ever met, a guy named Royce Gray. My first six months at Cornerstone, every time I walked to the pulpit of this little bitty church on a gravel parking lot, he'd hand me the mic, and it was one of those little churches that fired pastors. And he'd give me the mic, and he'd say, now you know, if you make it six months, they're going to keep you for indefinite. But the way they're talking, Pastor, I don't think you're going to make it. That was the last thing that happened every Sunday night before I preached. And, uh, but God blessed us and allowed us to do some interesting things. Uh, I'm not going to cover this in what I'm fixing to tell you, but I am married. I've been married for 35 years this May. My wife and I have triplets, uh, two girls and a boy. Yeah, Gabrielle, Danielle, and Galen. Uh, Galen... Uh, just took the church. We transitioned the church to Galen in uh, end of 2018 after 27 years. And, uh, and then we have another son. We almost named him Oops, and, uh, but we call him Dylan, and he works at one of our campuses down in Florence, Alabama. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited about being here today, and I wished I was young enough to stay around and watch the journey of your life, uh, but I'll watch it from afar. Uh, I'm going to tell you something that I'm going to get started. I don't know how many sermons you'll preach. I don't know how many songs you'll sing. But I can tell you, you will never do anything that has more impact on another human being than tell your story. And you need to make sure that your story is the story God wants it to be. I read the Bible for the first time in 1975, and I came to the end of the first chapter of Galatians. And this is going to be meaningful to you when I'm done. And the last verse of the first chapter of Galatians, Paul wrote a simple sentence, and they glorified God because of me. I wrote myself a question at 19 years of age. What about you to me? At the end of my life, will anybody be glorifying God because of me? Because if you don't have a clear picture of what the end should look like, you don't know how to write the journey to fill in the blanks. I didn't understand all this when I was your age. In January of 1975, I had graduated from a military academy. I went to the military academy because I started using drugs in junior high, and my parents sent me to the military academy in Roswell, New Mexico. And for two years in the middle of New Mexico, Roswell, New Mexico is where the aliens are. Uh, and, and so I didn't use drugs out there because you don't mix your drugs and your aliens. That would be, 
That's a whole other story. But I got back to Dallas, and I immediately went back with my old friends. And I can tell you that you can get in a controlled environment, but until something happens on the inside of you, nothing in your future changes. A heart Without a heart change, a head change won't last. And I got back to Dallas, and by January of the year after I graduated, I was a 133-pound speed freak. You call them meth addicts today. And my dad came over. My dad's about as tall as your president, and he's a great big Cajun man from southern Louisiana. And he came to my apartment, and he was drunk, as he had been most of my life. And he sat down across the table and said, I want to talk to you about the road that you're on and the life that you're living. And my dad just began to unload on me and how I was destroying my life. And I sat there looking at him the way so many young people look at an adults, like, okay, I, I, I feel like I need to sit here and look respectful, but let's get this over with. I'm, I'm sitting, but I'm not hearing what you're saying. My dad realized I wasn't getting it. My dad did something I never thought my dad would do. He said, Mario, I want to talk to you for a moment about God. And I did something I never thought I'd do. I stood up, slammed my hand down and said, Dad, wait a minute. You don't know me very well, and you haven't been around very much in my life. So let me tell you something about your son that you don't know. I don't believe there is a God. And I remember thinking, if there was a God, he'd have done better than a daddy like you. You've been married six times only to fail in marriage six times. You've climbed your way to the top of the business world only to drink your way to the bottom again and again and again. How many Friday nights did my little brother and I sit on the front porch with our little suitcase waiting on you to come and spend the weekend, one weekend a month you spent with your children and you couldn't get past the local bar? How many Friday nights did mom come out as the sun went down and say, boys, come in, your daddy's not going to make it? You say, how can you be raised in the South, the Bible Belt, not believe in God? It's not that hard. My stepdad that adopted us, gave me his name, became successful. So we had a lake house. You want to know where we were on the Lord's Day? We're at the lake. We didn't go to church. You want to know who your God is? Tell me where you are on the Lord's Day. It's a good indicator. What I didn't learn at home, I didn't learn in school because crazy schools are teaching the theory of evolution and wondering why people are violent. What do you teach? It's better for a species if the strong prey on the weak. Just keep teaching that theory of evolution to see how this works out. What I didn't learn in school and didn't learn at home, I didn't learn by church people because people in holy churches don't invite people like me to dirty up their church. I was never invited to church one time in my life. My dad didn't know what to do. He ate the rest of that meal in silence. He stood up and my dad began to cry. It's the first time I ever saw my dad cry. And he said, Mario, I'm not the father that I should have been. And son, I'm not the Christian I should be. But son, there is a God. I met him when I was 16 years old in a little church in southern Louisiana. And my drunk daddy started to walk out the doors of that apartment and turned around and looked at me and prophesied. I didn't understand it then. He said, God's going to put you in a place to get your attention. Had you asked me what I was going to do in life, I was going to tell you, let me give it the Bible phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, which means I'm going to sin until my mind blows up. I'm going to do anything that my flesh wants to do. You know what I didn't understand is how quickly life can change. People tell you life is determined by your habits. Life is determined by moments of decisions. 24 hours after that conversation in the middle of a crime, I committed a very, very brutal murder. And 24 hours after that, after a high-speed chase and a car wreck, I was arrested and taken to Irving City Jail. As I was taken out of the car and the news cameras were there, one of the officers told me to call my dad. And I called my dad, my, my stepdad, who I called dad, he raised me. And I woke him up and I said, Dad, 
And he said, what do you want? I said, Daddy, I'm in jail. And in frustration, he said, what are you in jail for? And I know he thought it was fighting or speeding or whatever I was doing. I said, Daddy, I committed a murder and I'm guilty. I didn't understand the silence of a parent, the heartbreak. But when my dad spoke again, he said, don't say anything to anybody. Be there as quick as you can. It wasn't long after that that an attorney came into my life. Dennis Brewer came walking in. I was so excited. Dennis Brewer was the most famous, well-known criminal attorney in Dallas, Texas. Uh, he was the Johnny Cochran, the Al Shapiro, the whoever is the guy. He was that guy, and I knew Dennis. I'd gone to school with his daughter most of my life till I got sent to the military academy. I'd see Dennis in clubs. Dennis was a heavy drinker, a womanizer. He was a foul-mouthed, pill-using, corrupt attorney. And when you're guilty, a corrupt attorney is good. <laughs> Dennis talks to me for five minutes and does something I don't think he's going to do. He pulls a Bible out of his briefcase and says, I want to talk to you about God. I said, well, they're just going to electrocute me. I don't even get to go to it for you to talk to me about God. And then he begins to say, Mari, I, my wife left. I'd shot my gun off in the house, and I was drunk, and she said I couldn't take it anymore. Took the kids and left. I was broken. I went to a little bitty Pentecostal church pastored by J. Don George with 59 people in it on a Sunday morning. And somehow that Sunday night I went back, and that Sunday night when he got done, I found myself at an altar prayer. Mari, something supernatural happened. I don't really know how I got to that altar, but all of a sudden God just changed my life and changed my heart. Mari, I gave my life to Christ, and I was saved and delivered. And I've been a drunk for 40 years, but I hadn't had a drink, and God restored my marriage, and then God filled me with the Holy Spirit when I was jogging, I started dancing in intersection, didn't even know what happened, and then God healed my wife for breast cancer, the full gospel business, and he said, Mari, I'm at a God that can do anything. Are you ready to pray? I said, no. He said, what do you want? I said, I want you to get me out of jail. He said, oh, no. I said, why not? He said, you're not ready yet. Subsequently, I was transferred to the Dallas County Jail, and it was there that sobriety set in. And I'm going to talk about drug withdrawals. Those were first. But sobriety in my soul, when I went to wake a young man up one morning, and when he didn't get up, as I pulled the covers off his bunk to get him to wake up, he had killed himself in the middle of the night. And I realized four feet over here, this guy couldn't take it anymore. They cut a middle-aged man down that had hung himself across the day room in the cell area where we were the... And he had left a note in his pocket to his wife and children. I don't remember the whole letter, but I remember the guard reading it, and I remember the last paragraph when he said to his wife, I'm sorry for all the pain that I've caused you. You'll be better off without me. I can't take it anymore. I didn't tell anybody, but I wondered as I dealt with loneliness and violence and perversion and an atmosphere of, of, of evil, at what point do I write that letter to my mom and dad? I am sorry for all the pain and the shame that I brought to you. You will be better off without me. I can't take it anymore. And every time I saw that attorney, he'd say, will you pray? And I finally said, yes. Never forgot the first prayer I prayed. I looked up at a concrete ceiling. And I said, God, if you're up there and you prove yourself to me, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. And can I tell you, when I gave God a chance, God gave me a flood. His grace is so far beyond what we can possibly imagine or preach or teach. Every kind of preacher in the world came to talk to me. But placed in my cell area was a young man by the name of Tommy Joe Wilson, who was a backslidden AG boy who had gotten in trouble going out to a bar with his brother. 
And between getting arrested and getting to where I was, he had got on his knees, had a God encounter, but had a fresh filling of the Spirit. And so here he came walking in, Tommy Joe Wilson. Now I'm in a five, there are five cells that have eight bunks in each cell and a 40-man tank with a day room in the middle for the day. And here's this guy that's happy. And you may not understand this, but you got 39 deranged, drug addicts, bipolar, demon-possessed, messed up people. And then you have a happy person. You may not know it, but you know what a happy person is in an unhappy room? They're a light shining in the darkness. The joy of the Lord is one of the greatest testimonies. You ought to just smile at somebody. Just put a smile on you. Guys, tell your face you're happy. Growling is not manly. It's just grumpy. He say, you want to study the Bible? I say, no, but you, you know what? You're not trying to stab me. You're not trying to rape me. You're not trying to steal from me. You're not trying to get me in a gang. I just hang out with you. Things went bad. The psychiatrist that evaluated me, Dr. Grigson, gave me the worst psychological report in the history of any inmate in the history of Dallas, Texas. I was the most dangerous inmate he had ever evaluated. Geraldo came out and did a whole story on it. And uh, I thought, am I crazy? And Tommy put his hand on his shoulder, my shoulder and said, Mario, everything's going to be all right. My attorney said, I've asked them to plea bargain for 50 years. Mario, I believe it's the best we can do. I thought I'll be 68 years of age. I can't live that long in here. And Tommy put his hand on my shoulder again as I sat there depressed and said, Mario, everything's going to be all right. The district attorney, Gary Noble, personally called me downstairs, tore up the plea bargain request, said, I'm going to try to put you in the electric chair. And I sat down at 18 years of age. I thought my life is over. And Tommy put his hand on my shoulder and said, everything's going to be all right. He didn't preach to me. He didn't prophesy. He just gave me a word of encouragement, which is all I could swallow. But it was all I needed. One day I stopped an older inmate by the name of Richard Salisbury from molesting a younger inmate. It didn't get physical, but it was one of those face-to-face guys jawing at each other. I went to bed that night, and all I had was a simple blanket and a little plastic mattress, and it was cold, and I'll never forget wrapping up in that blanket, trying to create that little cocoon of warm space to go to sleep. And just as I started to sleep, I felt the knife hit my throat. And as Richard leaned over to cut my throat, because I'd interfered with his perversion earlier that day, I heard Tommy Joe Wilson say, if you kill him, you have to kill me too. I thought, what is it about him that makes him willing to put his life on the line for somebody like me? I didn't know how to say I love you to another man because I'd never heard my dad say I love you to my mother. Those weren't words that we used in our house. But I loved him. He was my brother. And one day he went to trial and he came back. And when I asked him what happened to him, he said they sent me to prison for 75 years. And it was like a fist went through my gut. And I did something I'd not done. I went and laid down on a bunk. And I just began to cry, began to sob and broken because his life was over. And he didn't belong in there. And somewhere in there it dawned on me if what he did is like that. What you've done is far worse. And I'm never getting laying there realizing you're not ever going to walk outside and see the sun come up in the morning. You're never going to walk outside and see the moon and stars at night. You're never going to feel another snowflake. You're never going to hear another wave crash on the beach. And then something happened to me that I'd never thought about before. It dawned on me my mother was never going to put her arms around my neck and say, son, I love you. My dad would never put his hand on my shoulder and say, son, I'm proud of you. And it dawned on me how bad I wanted that to happen. 
And as I laid there just crying, just broken, he walked in and I said, how do you handle it? Out of that brokenness, the question, how do you do that? And I never forgot, he looked at me and said, Mari, I'd rather be in this jail with Jesus Christ than back out there living like I was for the devil. When he said those words, his story, something happened inside of me, and I knew there was a God because you can't do what he just did without somebody that I don't know. And I said, tell me about your God. And he took a Bible and opened it to the Gospel of John that was written so that men might believe. And he began to walk me through scriptures I'd never read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but should have everlasting life. He took me to Corinthians where this is what God will do if you'll come to Christ. He'll make you a brand new Christian. All of the old things will pass away and everything will become new. And I thought, man, if that doesn't happen, I have no future because if I'm tied to this moment, I have no destiny in tomorrow. But God can make me a new creation. He took me to Jesus that would be a friend that sits closer than a brother. Never leave me or forsake me. He took me to the God that can make a way where there is no way, to a God that can open a door that no man can shut. And as he read the word of God to me, Jesus walked out of the word into my life. I got down on my knees. I had a radical experience with Jesus Christ. I got radically saved. God took out a heart of stone that had no empathy, no compassion, no concern, and he gave me a heart of flesh to love people. I had an encounter with God. Now, God makes people right, not bright. You know, God fixes hearts, but if you don't renew your mind, your head's all messed up. You know, if you've never read the Bible, that book is a wild book. You have to be religious for the Bible to be boring. The Bible is a living word. I love reading the word. I, I, I just enjoy it. And I got all the way to James before I got sick. And I read out of the same mouth, ought not to come both blessing and cursing. I never had conviction of anything in my life. I thought I got saved. I must have, I've got this sin thing done. I'm done with that. I didn't realize that salvation was a moment and a process. Saved in a moment, name written in the book, saved for eternity, but the process of working out your salvation, man, that never stops. You say, well, I just want to get there. Not going to happen. So if you're not happy going, you're not going to like this because you don't ever get there. Your get there is in a box. When they put you in the box, you're home. But until you breathe that last breath, it's a go. I went to Tommy, and I, I, I thought, man, I've dishonored God because I cuss. And, and I grabbed him. I said, Tommy, did you know it was a sin to cuss? He said, yeah, well, I got mad. And I grabbed him up. Why didn't you tell me? He said, it's not your biggest problem. <laughs> Isn't it funny how saints don't want to get people to Jesus. They want to do Jesus' work and sanctify people. They're going to tell you how to live. I said, Tommy, i got to quit cussing. He said, okay, let's pray. I said, I want to pray. I want to quit cussing. I cussed when I prayed. If I prayed about you, I told God what, you know, I had, I, had some, I had some colorful language. And I'm sure God put his hands in Jesus here so he wouldn't think bad about me. You know, Jesus doesn't need to hear any cuss words. He said, what do you do? I said, when I get done, when I cuss, I want you to hit me. He said, that's your biggest problem. He said, you know, you've had a fight every day. I said, Tommy, you've got to prove you're a man if you're going to be a witness. He said, it's really not the way it works. I said, oh, yeah. He said, but I'll hit you. I don't know who his pastor was. He did a horrible job. And because uh, I didn't understand the power of prayer. You know why? Heart's right, head's not. Don't get it yet. When you're in a church and somebody gets saved that's never been saved, quit, act, quit expecting them to act like the preacher. It's bad enough that you expect the preacher to act like the preacher, but don't be putting that on other people. He hits me that afternoon on the shoulder. And Girls, you've probably never been hit 
The pastor could hit me, our president, or he could knock me down. How much oomph do you want to put in that? And he hit me, and I don't bruise easy. And I sure didn't when I was 18. And I looked at him. I thought she didn't have to hit me that hard. Thank you. I walked off. That afternoon, I'm standing, and he hits me on the bruise. I don't see it coming. I'm talking to somebody, and the next thing you know, I'm doing that. And I start at him because if you ever want to know the difference, who's a man, who's a sissy? Hit him. A man will come at you. A sissy goes, please don't hit me anymore, which never works. Never works. I started at him, and I caught myself, and I said, Tommy, thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate you doing that. I'm thinking, you didn't have to hit me like that. You didn't have to hit me on the same bruise. I just want to stop cussing. And I get in my bed, and I pull the cover on my ass. I tell you what, God, I'm not cussing anymore. God, you just watch me. Has it dawned on you that's not a prayer? Watch me. God says, okay, show me what you got. I'll step out. You do this by yourself. Next morning in breakfast, because God was watching, not helping, I cussed. I don't know what I said. But I saw him, and it just he started to hit me on the same bruise. I threw my arm up. He slid his, uh, his fist off my shoulder, buttoned me on the chin, hit my head right across there on this metal pole, busted it open. I fall face force, passed out, knocked out. Break, I wake up with cut head, broke nose, blood everywhere. He's going, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I said, don't worry about it. Now, that's how I quit cussing. I mean, I got it right, but it wasn't the right way. There is a better way. My, de- my defense is demon possession. Eleven people said guilty, but my jury foreman was a man by the name of Don McDaniels who had been a law enforcement officer possessed with a demon of murder, and he got set free and saved in, in California, and he recognized what God has done. He wouldn't let him give me a life sentence, and I received a 20-year sentence, and I was sent to prison. And I thought, God, this is so incredible. If you're a miracle-working God like that, I'll win the penitentiary to Jesus. I didn't know there were 45,000 inmates. And, but I went to prison, and I'm going along, and... I go to chapel, and and I hear somebody say, I've got a God that is so big, I haven't had a fight in three and a half years. His name was Pee Wee Garrett. He was a UPC-ordained minister. He had been a dope dealer, got saved, filled with the Holy Ghost. Of course, they think that's one experience. Went to their Bible college, got ordained, went back to Mineral Wells, and got sent to prison with a secret indictment. So I've got a UPC guy, and they're talking about Holy Ghost people. They're Holy Ghost people. And he says, I've got a God that is so big. I said, what do you know about God that I don't know? He said, I know about the Holy Ghost. I said, what's that? He said, it's the power of God. I said, do you have it? He said, absolutely. I said, give it to me. He said, man, you don't get it like that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. He said, but I teach a Sunday school class, Sunday. If you'll come to Sunday school, I'll teach about the baptism, and you can get baptized in the Spirit. I said, I'll be right there. So I find out how to get there, and I go to class on Sunday, and they've got 35 of those old-fashioned desks that you slide into, and they've got a little place to put the books up under them that are made for 12-year-olds. And you squeeze into them, and there's probably 75 to 100 inmates in this classroom, but they save me the front row seat right there where you are. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, wow, this place is crowded. Now, I've never been in church, and I've never been around Pentecostals. Pentecostals don't do Pentecost unless they're with other Pentecostals. You very seldom in a restaurant just heard somebody throw it down over at the table. I mean, you got to get them together. And they're, and they're not going to take off till they get a song. So... <laughs> 
So he says, let's pray. Well, I bow my head to pray, and I thought he's going to say, God, help us to understand the Bible today, make our minds clear, open our eyes, open our ears, you know. He starts, my head's bowed, my eyes are closed. God, in the name of Jesus. And when he said Jesus, they all started coming up out of them chairs, and they all started praying at the same time. Everybody's going off at the same time. I kind of peek out, and they're up, and their hands are going up, and they're hollering, God, send the wind. God, send the fire. God, send the rain. I thought, well, which one do you want? Because those don't work together. And, I mean, they're, they're just praying and praying, and, and, you know, and then they start talking in other tongues. And I promise you, I had no idea. I, I, I get scared. Now, I'm a grown, hairy-legged inmate, but these guys talking in tongues were the scariest thing that happened to me. And I'm thinking, God, these are a bunch of cannibals. I don't know what they're going to do in here. And so I said, God, I don't know what I did wrong, but if you don't let anything happen to me, I'll get out of here and I won't come back. And then they start trying to stop praying, and they don't have the ability to say amen and stop. Let me tell you the rule. Pentecostals make an F and stopping. When you say amen, it means you're not going to keep saying anything. It's not amen, glory to God, hallelujah. It's not a choo-choo train. Just stop. When you say amen, stop. Because people that don't know what you're doing think it's over with. I don't, I've had people say amen, and I get up to leave church, and they start praying again. I mean, they finally stop. They're sweating. These guys have been going at it. I don't have any idea really what's going on because I'm like, oh, man. He says, now I'm going to teach about the baptism. I said, good, I'm going to get that thing that makes people quit hitting me in this face, and I'm not coming back in here. He says, open your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Well, I open my Bible to Acts chapter 2 after I go to the front of the book and find out what page it's on, because I have no idea where it's at. I don't know where the Bible is. I mean, I'm reading it, but I don't know where anything is yet. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, what in God's green earth is a Pentecost? You know, unless you're raised in church, that's not a frequent, frequent term. I thought he'd tell me it was a feast day for the Jewish nation, la-da-da-da-da. He goes off. The Bible hmm, says in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, that when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together, and you begin to hear them. Amen. Hallelujah. They were all together, and they were in one place, uh, and all of a sudden, uh, I said all of a sudden, uh, there came a noise from heaven. Uh, it did not come from J.C. Penney. It did not come from Sears and Roebuck, but it came from the throne of God, then the breath of God flowed through the portals of glory. They heard a rushing mind wind. Uh, have you ever heard the wind, church? And the guy beside me jumps up and goes, I hear the wind. I hear the wind. And all of a sudden, he said, there appeared upon those men, cloven tongues like as a fire. Have you ever felt the fire, church? And the guy's going, I feel the fire. I feel the fire. They're singing. They're dancing. They're humming. And then he gets done. He said, now, do you want it? I said, no. And I got up, and I ran out of the room. I'm scared of it. Wednesday night, I see Tommy Joe. I grab him. Can't believe the guy that led me to Jesus in the same place I am. I said, Tommy, you know that guy over there? He said, Pee Wee Garrett, Marty, that guy's got more faith than any pastor I ever had. That guy knows God. I mean, he said, why do you want to know? I said, he spit all over me last Sunday. I said, forget him. You know about this Holy Ghost thing? He said, oh, yeah. Power of God. I said, you got it? He said, yeah. I said, give it to me. He said, Marty, you don't get it like that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. I said, teach me. He said, I can't. Hey, Terrence, tell Mari about the baptism. Terrence Smith from Chicago, big cross on his head, starts talking to me. I think, I don't want to hum when I talk. I don't want to tattoo my head. I just want people to quit hitting me in my face. But 25, 30 minutes later, faith comes. 
As he walked me through the word, faith rose up. I said, I'm ready. Again, Pentecostals don't do it by themselves. Hey, Pee-wee, come on. Get me in the back corner of the church. They make a circle so I can't escape this time. And they start singing a contemporary worship song. It only takes a spark to get a fire going. Then they start praying in tongues. And they're all praying in tongues. And I'm just standing there because faith is there. There's no fear. I just don't know what's going on. I still don't know what's going on, but I'm believing it's going to happen. And then they stop simultaneously. When you're in a moving of the Spirit, and it's like, man, you're thinking, man, who gave the signal? Their eyes were all closed. I mean, do they flick their fingers on each other? Or what? And then they start praying for you. And they don't just pray for you. They do that Pentecostal thing. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Oh, and the prayer, it's like a jellyfish. Slowly, it's got a light that's coming in. And their hands are getting closer. And you know that when one of them touches you on the head, you're going to get it. And so their hands are going in and out. And finally, you catch yourself doing what we taught the rap artists to do. They didn't start that music. I started it trying to get the Holy Ghost. Catch a hand. Catch a hand. Catch a hand. They lay their hands on me. I got filled with the Spirit just like that. Just like that. But you know what was more important to me than speaking in tongues? And I believe in the initial physical evidence. Don't think it ought to be taught any other way. Confidence. I had already dealt with insecurity and realized that the majority of people that make commitments to Christ don't keep it. And I was afraid I'd be one of those people. But when I got filled with the Spirit, there was a ceiling in my soul. There was a security in my heart. Let me tell you one last story. Christmas of that year comes around. I'm in a five-foot-wide, nine-foot-long cell. They gave me an apple and an orange for a Christmas present. It was our present. I sat down beside a cardboard box and began to read out of Luke chapter 2 where the angels appeared to the shepherds. I didn't know at home my mother was praying. See, my mother got saved. My stepdad got saved. My stepdad wanted to let my drug daddy to Jesus. Every member of my family got saved through this experience. Mama's praying. God, what about my son's not going to be there? And she's crying because I'm not going to be at the Christmas table. Somewhere in there she realized she had all of her family, but the Lord helped her to understand she was going to be okay. And she said, but what about him? He's going to be by himself alone. No gifts, no cards, no calls. Alone. All day. And then she really began to cry. And the Lord spoke to my mother. said, Barbara, don't worry about him. It's his first Christmas away from you, but it's his first Christmas with me. And can I tell you in that cell that day, the Spirit of the Lord brought comfort that no family could ever bring. In His presence, in His presence alone, is fullness of joy. And at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. This past Christmas, I did what I've done every Christmas since then. I took an apple and an orange and sat down with my grandchildren and said, let's talk about this story. Do I love Jesus today the way I did that day? If I didn't have anything, if I'd never gotten out, would I still sit down and say, Lord, in you I live and move and have my being? Here's my question to you today. Are you totally, unashamedly, 
without inhibitions, in love with Jesus Christ? Are you fully committed, not to ministry, but to the Master? Not to preaching, but to the person of Jesus. The rest of it will take care of itself. And so I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. And I'm just going to pray over you for just a minute. I know some of you need to leave right now is when chapel is supposed to end. If you need to do that, that's fine. We understand. But I'm going to pray for just a second. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for young people that are in this room as well as the professors and teachers. God, let us do a heart check from the inside out. Let us check our hearts. Nobody judges us, but let us wisely judge ourselves by being honest. More than salvation is that relationship that writes the story that we wanted to say at the end of our life. And they glorified God because of me. Let me ask you the question. How many of you need to find a place of prayer for just a few moments and just let the Lord work on that heart? Would you just raise your hands? Would you just get up if you raised your hand? Would you just come to the altar? Just come and find yourself a place to pray. Let the Lord work on you. Let Jesus work in you. Let the Spirit of God work in you. And those of you that need to go, you're dismissed. But those of you that need to pray, press in. And I'm going to ask our president to come and Brother Jeff to lead us in some worship. And I just want to let the Spirit of God just work. Just let the Lord just work. Spend time in His presence. Hallelujah. Let's all, let's all stand. At, or, I mean, at the altar, stay on your knees, but those are out here. These altars are going to stay open. You can hang and worship for a little bit. So powerful. Thank you, Pastor Maury, for being here. And uh, let's just spend some time with Jesus, these altars. However that teaching touched you, commitment, need some, to repent of some sin in my life, a hunger for the Holy Spirit, however this has touched you, this room is a house of prayer. God bless you guys. We'll see you tomorrow. For those who got to leave, it's going to be a great day. God bless.